Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and fellow GYN pathology aficionado, Dr. Kay Park. Dr. Park went to medical school at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and completed her APCP residency at New York Presbyterian Hospital, uh, Weill Cornell Medical Center, um, as well as a fellowship in GYN pathology there, and then headed over to Sloan Kettering for a fellowship in surgical pathology. She is an associate pathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering, as well as the director of education and the vice chair of graduate medical education. In an effort to highlight the innovative and exciting opportunities available within our field to pathology residents and those already in or considering medical training, I have asked Dr. Park and other guests um, to take part in my series on GYN pathology, where I am talking to leaders in the field about why they chose this area and what is happening in our field now. Dr. Park, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? I'm well. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so other than the sort of CV readings that I did above, um, could you tell us a little more about yourself and how you came to work where you do? Sure. Um, so I actually came into pathology in a somewhat indirect way. Um, mm -hmm. And I ended up at Memorial Sloan Kettering with some luck and a little bit of good timing. Um, out of medical school, I actually went into the match for orthopedic surgery. I was mm -hmm. a jock and totally wanted to be. What do you surgeon. mean by jock? You were like in college? Um, yeah, like in high school, I was athlete of the year and in college, um, I played ultimate frisbee and our team was really good and I had a lot of sports injuries and so that's what sparked my interest in, in orthopedics. Um, but by the time the match came around, there was just some stuff going on in my life personally. So like I was like, I'm definitely not going to match in ortho. Um, so I, I had to kind of come up with a backup plan. And so I went to my dean and I was like, listen, I'm not going to match. Um, here are my alternatives. So I was like, I like path, I like radiology, maybe anesthesiology. Those were my sort of backups. And so mm -hmm. um, when the day came, it used to be called the scramble day. I, I think it's called something yeah. different now, like soap or something. Oh, it was called scrambling when I was in. Oh, okay. So on scramble day, I, you know, got a list. It was like all fax machines back then. And there was a <laughs> bunch of programs in the city because I, you know, I wanted to be in New York City that had openings that didn't match in their programs. And one of them was Wild Cornell pathology program. So uh, the next day I went, I interviewed, they offered me the spot. At the end of the interview, I took it. And that's how I ended up in pathology. Um, didn't really know anything about path at the time. I just knew that I liked histology when I was like a first year medical student. So that's how I ended up at Cornell. Um, and then to end up at MSK, so there's been this like, really long history of a good relationship between um, Cornell and, and Memorial Sloan Kettering, and a lot of residents did rotations at Sloan, and I knew that um, I wanted to go there and train in, in surgical pathology. So, um, so that's how I ended up doing a fellowship there. And then um, I did my GYN fellowship at Cornell. I went to Sloan for my surge path fellowship, and back then they had a, a chief fellow year that you could do after your surge path year. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, like a traditional chief fellow. You graduate. They... Um, assign you to be like an attending faculty member and you sign out cases, but you also like the administrative chief. So you make the schedule for the new fellows and that kind of thing. So I applied to be chief fellow the following year. I got it. Um, and my search path year at Memorial actually was the first year that the department had gone completely subspecialized. So prior to uh -huh. that, all the attendings signed out everything, um, mm -hmm. even though the attendings there were highly subspecialized themselves. So um, when I was chief fellow, um, there were only two, uh, actually the year I was searched by fellow, there were only two GYN attendings, um, Dr. Carmen Tornos and Dr. Rob Saslow. 
And by the time I became chief fellow, Dr. Tornos had to leave to, another, to go to another institution. So it was just Dr. Sasa left and they were trying, you know, kind of scrambling to fill the other position. And since I'd already done a GYNPF fellowship and I was chief fellow signing our cases, um, they just assigned me to GYN, uh, which I was thrilled about because I loved it. Um, normally a chief fellow would sign out lots of different subspecialties during their chief I year. See. I see. So, so it's almost like you did a, a like a junior attending slash yeah. fellowship in GYN exactly. that year. Exactly. Circumstance. Okay. Yeah. And that was fantastic. Yeah. It was a great experience for me. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, like in the fall of that, my chief year, I was starting to, I was starting to think about looking for a real job. And um, I think it was my chair, my service chief called me in and said, you know, what are your job plans? And I was like, oh, you know, I'm going to start looking. And they're like, do you want to stay for another year um, as a junior attending? And I was like, that sounds great. I mean, I was in a great place, really great support, like world's, you know, best pathologist having your back at everything. And I was like, this is, yeah. like, this is great. So yeah, I'll definitely stay on for a year. Um, maybe two. And that year or two has turned into 15 years, which is how long I've been at Memorial. Holy cow, 15 years. That's yeah. Great. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. So it seems like not not in a way that uh, speaks against your skill, but it seems like scrambling is sort of a, um, a like theme. A where, yeah. Yeah. Where you, I, and, and let me say, I also am an ultimate Frisbee <gasps> aficionado. No so way. I, yeah. I uh, I played in college, not like competitive. They didn't have real teams then, but um, they have it in high schools now, which oh, is yeah. just that's how crazy I got into it. Yeah, that's yeah. so awesome. I mean, yeah. they were not doing that in Kentucky when I was growing up, but <laughs> I ended up in North Carolina, and it was really big there. And that's actually yeah. how I met my husband. I was oh my playing. God. We were on the same. Uh, we were green, and so we were the Incredible Huck. See. Oh, I love the frisbee name. <laughs> I know, aren't they great? I mean, so mythology many. puns have nothing on frisbee puns. Oh, but seriously! Oh my so god, so wonderful. So that's so great. Well, uh, so my husband, I met him through Ultimate Frisbee. Um, we played oh, on the same co-ed team, club team. You know, this was during my residency. I I continued uh-huh. to play after college, and you know, yeah. and stuff. And that's, that's yeah. how we met. I don't think I've ever been in better shape than when I played Ultimate oh, Frisbee totally. three days a week. I Completely. mean. <laughs> Especially in North Carolina, it was just like you were just soaked in sweat. And it was for those not familiar with pathology or GYN pathology, can you tell me how you normally spend your days? I'm not talking about like I get up this time and have coffee, but like what what during the day as a GYN pathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering do you do? What are your typical sort of tasks? Yeah, so my job is kind of split uh, amongst clinical duties, research, and administration. So um, the days are very different depending on what I'm kind of slated to do that day. So obviously mm-hmm. on the clinical days, I'm signing out cases, which mm-hmm. means um, that I sit with our trainees, which are our fellows, because we don't have a residency at Memorial. So all of our trainees are um, fellows that are sort of at the tail end of their training. So mm-hmm. they're all you know pretty well-versed in, in pathology. That's a pretty good deal for you it's all, just deal. parenthetically. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We yeah. don't have to sit there teaching really basic stuff to <laughs> first year pathology yeah. residents. Um, yeah. So that's really nice. And so we sit with them and we go through cases, you know, all the women, obviously at GYN, who are having um, treatment at Memorial. So we review every single case for every single patient that's getting treated, whether they're having surgery at the hospital or if they had something done outside, we have to review all those outside cases. Um, So the first like two, three hours of the day are spent sitting with the fellows, going over the cases, and that's where the bulk of our teaching happens. So um, Mm -hmm. a lot of teaching, obviously, uh, across the scope. I mean, not these days, but in, um, back in normal times. <laughs> One day, yeah. One day, hopefully <laughs> One day soon. we'll be back yeah. to that. Exactly. Um, 
so yeah, so that's like the morning. And then I spend most of the rest of the day trying to finalize my cases. So, you know, when you're mm-hmm. sitting with a fellow and just going through, trying to get through all the cases, we have a pretty high volume. Um, mm-hmm. And then in the afternoons, I sit and edit my cases, finalize and, and sign them out so that they can go to the treating physician, or um, we also have the patient portal. So it goes directly to the patient's portal and they get their, their reports that way as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, on the non-clinical days, uh, my research days, obviously, I'm either working on projects, um, writing, a lot of editing. Um, I'm involved in a lot of different societies and um, lots of different projects on that end. So, you know, lots of emails back and forth and book writing and things like that. Mm-hmm. And then on the administrative side, um, for six years, I was the program director of the Search Path um, Fellowship. So mm-hmm. obviously, a lot of my time was taken up just dealing with that. Um, That's basically like being the residency director because yeah. you don't have residents, right? Exactly. You have, and I, I've heard uh, stories that you all have a lot of fellows every year, right? What's yeah, we have number? close to 40 total fellows uh, amongst all the subspecialties. So um, SearchPath has 17 fellows every year. Uh-huh. And then we have molecular, cytology, breast, GI, GU, GYN, you know, so it's... So you were the sort of um, the director path. of all of that. Oh, just SearchPath. Just okay. SearchPath. So 17 right. people. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And then... Um, now I'm the director of education, so I kind of oversee all of the fellowship training programs. Mm-hmm. And um, also being vice chair of the GME, I'm more involved at the institutional level with graduate medical education and sort of trying to figure out what's the best thing for all of our trainees at the institution. So mm-hmm. um, so a lot of meetings and brainstorming and um, talking to leaders within the institution about, about trainee-related issues. So that's sort of, those are sort of my admin days. And of course, like everyone else, most of the days just kind of tackling your emails, making sure you don't get out of hand and, you know, answering questions and dealing with things like that. Yes. And chasing, <laughs> chasing down stains and yes. following up on <laughs> exactly that you did the day before and the exactly. day before. The day exactly. before. Yeah. Um, it always, something always seems to come up. Um, it's yeah. the greatest fallacy, I think, in the morning to look at your stack and think, maybe I'll maybe I'll have time to do something else today. Sometimes. <laughs> you know, just don't even like have that thought because it's right. just not. Not worth it. Um, so what would you say your case mix is of, because um, you all are a referral institution, um, the place where I am now at uh, Women and Infants is a little bit less like that. But yeah. when I was at Hopkins, I would say the case mix on a given day, uh, it depended, but it could vary. There Sometimes there were a lot of what we called outside cases or sort of confirming consults yes. of patients coming there for surgery. Yes. What, what, but with you all being what I would consider like a referral center, what's what's the percentage of that in a given day? Um, it's about half and half, actually. Okay. We have a yeah. lot of surgeries in house. Obviously, we have a ton of outside consults, you know, for right. patients who who are coming but have already had the diagnosis on the outside. Right. We also have, I'm sure, of course, you've had at Hopkins a true um, consult, a, a true yeah. consult where it's just yeah. pathologist to pathologist or patient to pathologist right. directly mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. for like a second or third opinion on a case. So we have a lot of those as well. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. I honestly think that as a, a a learner as a trainee, the the place you can learn the most sometimes is from those confirming consults. Oh, absolutely. Because nobody thought it was a question, right? So right. you get to see cases that are either routine or sometimes, you know, you get to see trends and things that are happening yes. sort of in the community. And yeah. uh, 
it's good. It's good practice for when that person maybe ends up in community practice, but also just for life. Yeah. And, and, you know, so, those, no. those cases are often the, the difficult ones that the pathologist yes. on the outside is having trouble with and, and often yeah. cause problems for us. It's not like we know everything. Um, no, no, no. And it's, but then you can walk down the hall and you've got a yeah. couple of people, you know, who are, That's you the know, beauty widely. of working where I work. Yeah. I know. And every time, every time there's a case series, I swear of like some esoteric tumor with like all these lovely molecular morphologic right. findings, it's always you all because yeah. <laughs> you're just like flagging them and just, I mean, you see, you know, the weird stuff and it's, yeah. it's such a high throughput place so i'm yeah. sure that also goes hand in hand with working very it does. hard it's, it's fantastic yeah. yeah yeah um so as i interview various folks involved in medicine and science i'm seeing a theme emerge that mentorship of some kind usually plays a role in the selection of a specialty yeah. um, i find it very interesting your story about <laughs> going into pathology yeah. <laughs> uh on a like on a almost like a you know you gave a list and did an interview that's so lovely so sometimes uh, Someone along the way usually offers um, opportunities or guides you at a crossroads. Sometimes, um, you know, like in your case, you know, you end up here when you didn't plan on it. Um, I myself can point to several individuals very early in my career who were, you know, even in medical school, I knew this uh, female pathologist who was just like a dynamo. And I remember listening to her talk about cervical cytopathology. I had no idea what she was talking about, but she was so excited about yeah, it, you know? Yeah, and yeah. as I went through medical school and I just kept checking things off the list and being like, I can't do that. I'm not <laughs> going to do that. I think I'm too introvert to do that. Um, I, I just came back and said like, well, what about pathology? And I think having that person in my my head, you know, like having that direct line to someone that I knew did it and yeah. was like this dynamic, interesting person. Um, is this true for your story? Or you said you had liked histology. So how did you choose GYN pathology specifically as a specialty? Well, um, in med school, I actually had fantastic pathology professors. Um, mm -hmm. They won the teaching awards every year, so much so mm -hmm. that eventually they were just like, you can't vote for them anymore. They, they get it every year. So you got to give somebody else a chance. That's what happened. You got to handicap them. Yeah, yeah, they were fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and so when I got to my residency, um, the only subspecialty that was its own rotation was mm -hmm. GYN, actually. Everything else was kind of a mixed bag, like breast and GI and thyroid and all that. So you got to spend a month dedicated to just GYN pathology which mm -hmm. I really liked actually, because it allowed you to kind of focus and really learn a particular mm -hmm. organ system. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, as you said, it's, it's the people, the, your attendings, the mentors. And um, I really liked the team. There was just a few um, attendings on the service and they were just one lovely people. Mm -hmm. And I found um, the case material really interesting. And um, I would say my two mentors were Dr. Kasha Parag. She's retired now but she was sort of the cervix queen and the HPV queen. And um, she kind of planted the seed for me with cervical pathology. Um, she was just like a dynamo at the scope and was really fast and just taught really well um, and was really passionate about what she did. And then Dr. Laura Ellenson, who's, who was the director mm -hmm. of um, gynecologic pathology there and also the program director. Mm -hmm. And um, she was also just, I was just always in awe of her because she was so accomplished. She had her own lab. She was a great diagnostician. She had um, two young kids. She was writing grants. I mean, she just did everything. <laughs> she spun straw into gold. Yeah. I mean, everything <laughs> exactly. she didn't do. <laughs> exactly. And I was yeah. like, I don't, I don't, you know, and I was so young then and I didn't know about kids and how hard that, but it was just yeah. amazing um, yeah. how well she did everything. And, you know, and I, sh I knew she had trained with Dr. Kerman at Hopkins and mm -hmm. um, she had this really great pedigree and she, but she was like so down to earth and caring and just like a really wonderful human being. So, you know, I probably, it wasn't really in my consciousness at the time, but like in thinking back now, 
mm-hmm. I realized that she had a really big influence on me. And, um, and I like women's health, you know, admittedly, I really hate breast pathology, so I could never do that. But, <laughs> but the variety, yeah, of it, in, you know, like, it is kind of amazing that those two things often get lumped together. Exactly. And to, me, to me, the the way that they, the way that I feel about, I should just bring my own experience. The way that I feel about signing them is signing them out is so different. You right. know, they totally. could, could not be more different. Exactly. So, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I did sign yeah. out breast pathology for several years. Um, at yeah. the ending, so, you know, it, but, um, but yeah, I just, I just really like the team. And so I think that's what kind of um, drew me to them. Uh-huh. And, um, and what's really great for me now is that Dr. Allenson, um, who was at Cornell for you know twenty plus years? Um, just recently crossed the street over to Memorial because they're literally oh. across the street from us. And oh, she's how now, lovely! So they're yeah. sort of reunited. I'm That's reunited. So she's now the director of our GYN pathology service. Um, oh. So it's like come full circle for us. It's it's really nice and really lovely. That's, yeah, I, I suppose that kind of thing can happen in New York where oh, yeah. we're together. Absolutely. You know, it's not like you have to move <laughs> across the country to have another great opportunity. For, yeah, um, just down the street or yeah, something. And, um, yeah, and you know, and I've had a lot of different mentors both in pathology and outside of pathology and not necessarily in gyn pathology um but there's this wonderful radiologist at sloan um, her name is uh, dr laura lieberman she's a radiologist and she heads the office of, of faculty development and um you know she's been a mentor to many 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 women at the hospital uh-huh. Uh-huh. and um we used to have a women's group called athena and she said <laughs> that um that mentor Right. The word mentor comes from mentor from um, uh, Homer's Odyssey and that Athena, who is the goddess of uh, wisdom and war, took the form of mentor to guide um, Telemachus, who was Odysseus's son during the Odyssey. I don't know if you remember all this, but um, um, Odysseus had to go off to the Trojan War. He was gone for like 20 plus years and yeah. there were all these suitors at the house and, you know, trying to get his mother's affections. And so Athena took the form of mentor to guide Telemachus you know, through um, finding his father and, you know, killing all the suitors. And, and that's where that word comes from, is someone who guides you through trials and tribulations in your life. And it's really Athena who took the form. So it was really a woman, not a man. And so like all of that kind of came together for me. And I was like, this is fantastic. <laughs> it is fantastic. And, and I, I find over and over again, when I talk to people who end up in, you know, in successful stories like, like yours, that there was usually someone advocating for you. Absolutely. Or at minimum, what I, I say to my children all the time, modeling good behavior for you, you know, yes. like showing you that it's possible. Although this, um, your mentor sounds a little bit <laughs> like superwoman I so I don't know, or maybe a uh, uh, wonder woman, right. um, but it, uh, just showing like modeling how it can be done, especially, um, as a, a woman in pathology, um, with the different demands yeah. on women's time. Absolutely. Um, and, uh, it's, it, that's really heartening to hear that that um, you had that experience, and yeah. I I love that it was tied to Greek mythology. <laughs> Lovely. I was actually just reading about Athena. I think it's Athena who used um, the head of Medusa on her shield um, to oh, during battle. Yeah. And I was looking up and reading it because I was doing something about micropapillary. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Serious, no yes. <laughs> Yeah, so I think uh, what's the guy's name? The one who killed uh, Medusa gave it to it gave her, gave her head to Athena, uh, and she stuck it on her shield. So isn't that lovely? That is lovely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, you are 
widely published in the area of GYN pathology. I couldn't even get through all of your publications, but it seems like you focus in part on cervical cancer, among other things. Um, Can you tell me what your experience was like getting started in research and how you came to sort of place your focus where you have? Yeah, I mean, that's another kind of circuitous path. Um, I actually, as a resident, absolutely hated research and Mm. told everyone with an earshot that I was never going to be in academic medicine. Um, (laughs) Isn't it funny how that works out? (laughs) Um, I hated writing. I hated doing projects. You know, I didn't make it a secret, so everyone knew. Um, And so, you know, my goal always was just to be the best pathologist that I could be so I could go out and just have a, you know, nice practice and, and have a life. Um, and then when I ended up at Sloan and, you know, was asked to stay, I was pretty sure that I was going to be on what's called the clinician educator track, which is like, you know, not the academic track, but the teaching track. Um, but what happens in a place like Sloan is that it's kind of like an osmosis effect. Like you're just surrounded by really brilliant, really passionate people who are working on a million different things and they need help Mm -hmm. and you get kind of pulled into these different things. And that's kind of what happened to me. That's how I got started on my on my research track. Um, and the other mentor, obviously, it was Dr. Soslow, who yeah. was the only other attending in GYN and very senior and world renowned. And he was always getting invited to publish this and speak at that. And he, you know, he just didn't have the time to do everything he was being invited to. So yeah. he would start asking me, hey, are you interested in getting involved in this or speaking at that? And so that's kind of how it got started. And then um in 2007, the Kojima paper on gastric type adenocarcinomas of the cervix got published. And that uh-huh. was really like the big one in AJSP um, that I think caught people's attentions about these, this uh, rare type of tumor. And mm-hmm. so that's when we started. And this is, again, in collaboration with Dr. Parag, who was still at Cornell and doing her cervix work. And I was at Sloan. So we collected cases of you know unusual cervical adenocarcinomas, and um, that's that was the big study that we did, published a few years later about you know HPV in unusual types, and mm-hmm. that was kind of what started my interest in cervix. And I've always gravitated to HPV and cervical lesions. I I don't know why. Mm-hmm. You know I think we all have a thing that we like when we look at it under the microscope, um, yeah. and cervix just happened to be the thing that I really liked. And I think Dr. Parag her her uh, mentorship really did have an effect. She was such a dynamo at the scope. It was really impressive. And, and I kind of wanted to be her. <laughs> I totally understand. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I also noticed um, it's, well, Dr. Soslow seems to be one of those people like Dr. McCluggage, who I think must write papers oh God, while he's sleeping or totally, something. Totally. But um, I also noticed that you're um, your first author on obviously quite a few papers, but you're also middle author on a, on a yeah. lot of papers, which yeah. I think is an interesting um, sort of indicator that, like you said, there's just people all around you just doing things all the time, yes. right? And so you're not only collaborating, you're coming up with your own ideas and yes. they're collaborating on your ideas. And yes. I yes. I sort of see that as um, a part of academics that maybe people like you rewind and think about how you were when you were a resident thinking, I can't, I don't want to do that. I can't possibly do that because you see it as building every single thing you do from the ground up, doing it all yourself, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't realize that it can be give and take and collaboration and not necessarily every publication you have has to be um, sort of built from the ground up with your blood, sweat and tears, sort of. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, um, in the beginning, the ideas came from other people. You know, I I did not have any ideas on my own. It's just other people came up with ideas and I did the grunt work. Um, and then as you do more and more of that and you start to learn more and see what other people are doing, you start right. to and generate your own ideas. Um, right. 
and that's, yeah. that's a natural pathway and, and people don't tell you that, you know, they no. think you just no. have to come out of the gate running. No. <laughs> no. And I, I don't, I do not come from a sort of family of scientific background. I, I, I tell this joke to my friends and I'll say it out loud now. It's the first time I've ever said it on a recording, but I remember very early on in medical school, someone <laughs> invited me to journal club and I thought people were going to sit around and write in journals. And I was like, I do not want to do that. <laughs> like, I don't want to write about my feelings in front of a room full of people. Why would I want to? <laughs> and they were like, um, sit down, hang on a second. I'm going to explain this to you. Oh my so, God, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, <laughs> I, so as, even as a resident, I had the same attitude towards research that you did, that it's, um, you know, it's stuffy and these are people who already know how to do all this stuff and I can't possibly ever learn it. And it's just too uphill and I'll never, you know, and I think a lot of that, you know, they talk about imposter syndrome and all that stuff. Oh with, my God. I with, still feel it every day. Believe me. With women. Yeah. Right? But I think, um, uh, the difference is that we just have to like, people like you have to just take trainees under your wing and say, listen, you can do this. Yeah. It's not that hard. Yeah. At the first, I'll give you some ideas and I will list out the things you need to go do. And then after you do this a couple of times, you'll just know how to do it and yeah. it won't be that big of a deal. Yeah. So, yeah. um, yeah, I think that's so interesting. <laughs> about that. But that journal club thing, I, I, I mean, it's, it's like embarrassing. It's I love also... that story. I love that story. I have so many embarrassing stories myself. Which I, mean, <laughs> I just remember, and it was like this very nice um, woman. She was a psychiatry chief resident and she was like, hang on a second, come sit down here. And she just like, explained it to me. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. Anyway. Um, <laughs> um so um, it seems in, in not in GYN pathology, only in GYN pathology, but all kinds of pathology that molecular techniques are being increasingly applied. And um, especially in GYN, it seems like maybe we lagged a little far behind some yeah. other areas, like certainly like breast and yeah. things, um, both for prognosis and increasingly for diagnosis. Um, not not only with molecular research, but how how other ways do you see like GYN pathology sort of progressing from here in terms of research? Um, going yeah. forward. Yeah. I mean, if I, when I think about where we were, like even just seven, eight years ago and where we are now, it's, it's yeah. a whole different world. And, and yeah. you're absolutely right that we did lag behind a lot yeah. um, from some of the other subspecialties, but um, yeah. I'm really excited now, you know, with uh -huh. everything from, you know, like PARP inhibitors and high grade serous cancers to uh -huh. the discovery of recurrent mutations like FOXL2 and granulosa cell tumors or smart right, right. and small cell hypercalcemic tumors. Um, so, and then the sarcomas, you know, all the new translocations that are coming out in, in GYN sarcomas that are helping us yeah. really define and classify these cancers with targeted therapies. You know, that's like the most exciting thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think our field is, is really exploding in terms of, you know, learning about what drives these tumors, what uh, we can do to help treat these tumors, especially with the rare tumors and the, the tumors that we haven't really been able to touch in terms of improving survival after all these years, you know, so obviously gastric type cervical cancer is, is, is my um, main interest. And, and those tumors are just abysmal and terrible. And we just yes. don't have anything right now to help treat these patients. So, you know, we're working on um, different ideas for what we can do to help, you know, target them. I mean, you look at uterine serous cancers, the survival hasn't changed in 20 plus years. <laughs> And right. we have, you know, all these new molecular techniques that are armamentarium. And I'm hoping that as we move yeah. forward, that we can start to make a difference in patients' lives with all of these new technologies and things that are coming on, um, you know, immunotherapy, for example. And yeah. um, even in the world of HPV, you know, I think people were like, oh, HPV, cervical cancer, like you screen them, it's fine. But there's still thousands of women who get it every year 
in the United yeah. States and women who die. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, and honestly, I think we start to make more headway when the oropharyngeal head and neck squamous cell carcinomas started to become a thing. And mm-hmm. um, that's interesting because it maybe then it was uh, then it was on people's radar. Yeah. Right. It's a bigger population. I remember the HPV vaccine was just coming out when I was in medical school. Right. right. There were patients calling pediatric clinics trying to get it for their newborn babies and stuff, um, <laughs> which, you know, but it um, it just seems like the the landscape of research in general is changing. But I think GYN pathology in particular is sort of um, changing in terms of the the papers you see getting published and sort of the landmark journals and things like that. Oh, so yeah, I think absolutely. it's very exciting. Yeah. But, um, yeah. So do you have any, uh, anything I didn't ask you about or any final thoughts you'd like to offer to uh, say um, about GYM pathology in general or? Well, I, I would just like to say that I think pathology as a field in general is something that's really um, underutilized and underemphasized in medical school these days. Um, yeah. You know, as part of being director of education, I've done some looking into like data, like ASCP data about, you know, how many people go into pathology, how many U.S. grads versus foreign grads. And um, uh-huh. the field in general is is kind of shrinking. Like there's going to be a shortage of us, you know, yeah. in, in the not too distant future. And and it really makes me sad because it's such a, an amazing field. We're at the forefront of everything that's happening in the world, you know, especially now with COVID and all the lab stuff. That's all pathology. Like we all know yeah. that, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so I would just like to say to, you know, people who might be thinking about a career in pathology or um, in, in general, it, it's an amazing field. You could really make a big difference in someone's life. And uh, and we're not all weirdos sitting in the basement. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, somebody tells that bad joke about like, how do you tell an introverted from an extroverted pathologist? You know, this one, no, the introverted pathologist looks at his own, her own shoes and the extroverted pathologist looks at your shoes while they're talking to you. (laughs) This is terrible. But it's, I mean, I think maybe 60 years ago that might've been somewhat true, but it's interesting because pathology, I mean, the number of, of applicants is decreasing, but the thing I find interesting is that we are becoming more, uh, almost majority women. And then also, um, you know, people, and I just interviewed someone else from my podcast about diversifying um, pathology. So I think all those things are happening and I think it's going to be so interesting to see how it changes and having, um, you know, with the changing medical school curriculum, figuring out ways to sort of make sure people know that pathology is um, a dynamic, interesting field where you can change people's life. Oh, absolutely. um, you get to teach in a way that you don't really teach in any other specialty. Um, And I interviewed at OBGYN on my podcast and she said she loves following pathology Twitter because um, (laughs) we're so good at educating people. So, you know, it's because of all the pretty pictures. (laughs) It's true. They're so pretty. (laughs) It's so true. Anyway, well, thank you for coming today. This was really lovely to speak to you. Yeah, uh, I had so much fun. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, everyone out there, stay safe and thank you again. Okay, today I am joined by two special guests, uh, my former GYN pathology co-fellows from Johns Hopkins, Dr. Kruthi Maniar and Nilufar Nasseri-Nick. Dr. Maniar went to medical school at Mount Sinai School of Medicine and stayed on to complete her APCP residency, followed by her fellowship at Johns Hopkins in GYN pathology. She is an associate pathologist at Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine, as well as the residency program director. 
where she has earned multiple teaching awards and filled a CV full of original publications, leadership roles, and other impressive accolades. Dr. Nasseri Nick went to medical school at Azad University in Tehran and completed her pathology residency at Orlando Health in Orlando, Florida, followed by her fellowship at Johns Hopkins in GYN Pathology. She is in community practice in Miami, Florida at Pathology Associates at the Baptist Health um, Hospital in South Florida. In an effort to highlight the innovative and exciting opportunities available within the field to pathology residents and those already in or considering medical training, I have asked these pathologists here today as a part of my series on GYN pathology, um, where I'm talking to leaders in the field about why they chose this area and specialty and what's happening in our field now. So my friends, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. How are you today? Thanks. Hi, thank you for having us. That's Neelu's voice and yes. Kruthi, do you want to say Thanks, hi now Natalie. so people know your Excited voice? to be on your show. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll try not to be too silly, but things might get out of control because um, we're not just coworkers, we're also <laughs> friends. So, um, so could you tell us about yourself, aside from the sort of CV stuff I've read above and how you came to work where you do? Um, we will go in alphabetical order and start with Dr. Manny first. Sure. So um, thank you for the really kind introduction. I, so I, I'll tell you that I, you know, I grew up in central Jersey, um, and was lucky enough to go to some great public schools and public college there where I got to discover my love of biology and, you know, fully flesh out being a science nerd. Um, and then mm -hmm. I got to spend a decade in New York City where I met my husband. And I, I did want to tell you that when I told him the name of your podcast, he actually understood the reference mm -hmm. without my explaining it. So he's an excellent pathology oh, spouse. Boy, you're doing a good <laughs> job there. <Yeah>. So <laughs> that's great. Um, and uh, after after fellowship at Hopkins, I actually always thought that I would stay in the Northeast because that's where my family is and where my husband's family is. Um, but I really wanted to do academic GYN pathology. And when the opportunity came up in Chicago, I came out here to interview and just kind of fell in love with the institution. And seven years later, I am still here. Yeah, burning it down. <laughs> so was your family a science science family? Like not my immediate family. No, I my I come from a line of accountants. So, <laughs> <laughs> although although that's still like the pocket protector set, <laughs> right. you know, like you're you're, you're like we are we are all nerds together nerds, under yes. the same nerd. Yeah, that's great. Okay, um, and Dr. Nick, would you like to go now? Yes. So I uh, was born in England. My parents were in graduate school in England, and they had me in England, and then they. Okay, we are Iranians, so they went back to Iran in the middle of the war between Iran and Iraq. And I grew up during the war, and uh, I was there until I finished medical school. And then uh, since I had a British passport, I was between coming here or to the UK, and I decided ultimately to come here. I met my husband here, and my husband hails from Florida, so I wanted to stay in Florida. I picked uh, Orlando Health. I only uh, ranked this one program because that was where my husband had a job. And I interviewed at other places, but I really wanted to stay in Orlando. And I was happy with it. It was a huge community practice, about 120,000 cases a year, and a multi-specialty private practice. And I really liked that model. Um, especially because that particular program had a residency program also. So you could teach and, you know, you could like sign out. The pace was to my liking. So uh, a lot of the attendings had done their residence through a fellowship at Johns Hopkins. So that was a connection. And uh, uh, 
what I figured during my residency was that um, although a lot of search path uh, people like do sign out GYN cases, they're not necessarily really good at it. Like people think that they know (laughs) (laughs) that they know GYN and, you know, then when you, you know, sort of look at the reports or like look at how they're doing stuff, you realize that, you know, it's just not really true. And uh, I felt like, it would be a good idea. And especially, I, it's funny, but like, I really liked uh, the sex course trauma tumors and I love them. Like, you know, I love the different varieties of them. And like, you know, uh, so I started like doing a um, three years uh, teaching program for the GYN residents of the hospital. And I would like do a chapter on GYN pathology once a week for them. And then this made me like really, uh, basically uh, determined to like pursue a fellowship in GYN pathology and uh, uh-huh. I uh, went to Hopkins and that's how I met you guys and I always wanted to do uh, private practice and I always wanted to go to Florida so once because my husband's family are from Miami and uh, that's where I ended and I'm you know doing this uh, private practice uh, job here and uh, it sort of turned out like in our multi-hospital system our hospital is the one that gets the most GYN cases. It just worked out like that. And yeah. But I do sign out like breasts. As we have a lot of like lung cancers and thymomas and stuff. We do thoracic surgery. We do like um, GI cases. It's a multi-specialty uh, basically uh, group also. But uh, most of the GYN cases I am in charge of. Yeah. A little yeah. shudder went up my spine when you said thymoma. So <laughs> I, I, uh, a, B, I, B, B2, I think, B1, I know. Send it for flow. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that was always my instinct. Like I'm willing to try, but it would be great to have flow. Um, and there was a connection between your residency program and Hopkins, wasn't there, yeah. Neeler? Wasn't yes, there someone yes. who, yeah. No, so several people, yeah. like my program yeah. director, Dr. Lee was from Hopkins and there were a mm-hmm. couple of hematopathologists from there. Uh, we mm-hmm. hired another uh, pathology, Dr. Chung. Uh, uh, from Hopkins so there always had been like, this relationship between us and Hopkins so um, yeah. that helped me a lot I did yeah. um, uh, observations elsewhere I did at MD Anderson and Yale they were really good programs but I guess I really loved the GYN pathology program at Hopkins because uh-huh. all the attendings were strong and the cases were really really good yeah. and uh, I really enjoyed my fellowship and I learned a lot me too. And I also yeah. liked when I was looking around, at least it was one of the only places I found where we were signing out cases on our exactly. own. And mm-hmm. it was nice to sort of, um, you know, it's sort of like wearing training pants while you have someone like around you to help you because, yeah. it was, you know, everyone always says the first slide you look at as an attending looks different than every other <laughs> slide you've ever seen. And I, I, uh, I agree with that. So we've already covered the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is but maybe we can go into a little more detail and we'll start with you, Nilu. But for those not familiar with our specialty, can you talk about the things you normally do in a work day? I would assume that because I've also been in community practice that your Mm -hmm. experience is a little bit different. I know, for example, that you gross some. So can you just talk about sort of your normal daily activities? Yeah. So um, my partners are sort of like old fashioned and uh, they sort of didn't like having a PA Grows their specimens, and at the beginning, it was really surprising to me. And uh, one of my other colleagues, Andrea, she also did uh, training, residency, and fellowship, two fellowships at Johns Hopkins, and also like coming from that program to here, it was a shock for us to not have any <laughs> PAs and to do the grossing ourselves. But then after a while, I actually started to like that because there's no question about like any margins because you know what yeah. you've done. You 
looking at the cases yeah. that you cut yeah. yourself. So yeah. there's four of us, and Andrea is part time right now. But like the three that uh, are full time, me and the two other guys, we uh, let's say that for like on Tuesday I'm on call. So everything that comes out on Tuesday, every specimen, I gross them, and then every specimen that comes out on for Wednesday, I sign them out. So they're all my cases. And mm-hmm. uh, the next day, there's the other guy. The next day, there's the other guy. So it kind of goes in a rotation, yes. like grossing, signing yes. out. Okay, okay. And, and, and Andrea helps with the sign out. Like she gets half yeah. of this stuff for sign out. Yeah. 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 Okay. And um, Kruthi, would you like to talk about what your day? I assume yours is also a little bit different than mine or Dr. Nick because yeah. uh, you're also doing like a leadership role, program director, wearing different hats during the day. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, being program director kind of changed my days entirely. So, you know, I, I spend, I still spend a lot of time on my clinical work, um, signing out mostly GYN, a little bit of breast and placenta. And occasionally I get put on services that scare me a little bit more like um, doing thoracic and the thymomas made me shudder too. So, uh, <laughs> but yeah, so, so a lot of sign outs still, um, we don't gross in, in my academic um, institution. We have our, our PAs and residents gross. We're available to help them. And, you know, we cover um, non-subspecialty frozens. Um, and then in between that, making time for teaching and research collaborations. Um, but, you know, when I became program director, someone who'd been doing it for a lot longer um, told me that the thing that she thought was the biggest difference is that you just didn't know how your day was going to go any particular day. And that's been absolutely true because, yeah. you know, I go in and I've got plans and I think I'm going to do this, this, and this. And then an issue comes up and it like completely sidetracks the day. Um, and uh-huh. for someone like me who really likes to have like a regimented plan for my day, um, that has been uh-huh. quite a challenge and one that I'm honestly still kind of learning to deal with and learning to, you know, go with the flow a little bit more. Um, so I'm not good at that either <laughs> for what it's worth. And, uh, neither are my kids. And now I think it's probably like genetically my fault that they're like that, but I don't know. I'm like that too. It's like, I've got a list of things to do. Can't you respect that? No, nobody respects that. Yeah. That's very interesting. Lots Um, of to-do lists. Um, Lots of to-do lists. Although I've heard lately that people say you should stop making to-do lists because they just make you anxious about all the things you haven't done yet. But who knows? I mean, whatever. Yeah. They'll change their mind about <laughs> that. I don't have months. any lists. If that helps. You don't have any lists. No. <laughs> I just take it as it is, you know? You just go through the day. Uh, yeah. <laughs> probably much I would healthier. like to be yeah. you, Neelio. Really. Yeah, I know. I, I meet a lot of people who I would like to be, but I yeah. think just embracing the fact that I'm high strong <laughs> is part of my journey. So um, <laughs> as I um, interview various people, I'm noticing and I'm sort of becoming fixated on this idea of mentorship because I think, especially um, we were talking about this before we started recording, the fact that applications to pathology are going down. And I see people talking about the fact that when they ask medical students, why did you choose the specialty you chose? And why specifically did you not choose pathology? A lot of times they'll answer and they'll say, I didn't know what pathology was. I didn't know what pathologists do. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, they see you teaching pathology and saying like, here's a squamous cell, but they think like, well, if that's all that Bozo does all day, I don't want to do that, you know? And they don't understand that we're so involved in patient care. And, you know, I, myself, like, uh, Neela talks about how much she likes sex cord stromal tumors. Like I was the one who always volunteered to cover frozen sections for people who, you know, needed to go to a meeting or like had to pump cause they'd had a baby or something because I yeah. loved the frozen room and I still do. And so I think there's 
great things about our specialty that people don't even know. And I can point to people in my past, pathologists who I knew when I was a medical student or even um, when I was working as a phlebotomist in undergrad. So um, was there someone like that in your life, like a, a certain person you can point to who helped you through the way? I mean, I think we all can say, you know, the people we worked with at Hopkins were our mentors. But even before that, was there someone who made you want to be a pathologist? And we'll start with uh, we'll start with Kruthi this time. Yeah, absolutely. That is 100% um, true for me. So um, when I was a medical student, one of the pathologists who taught in our uh, in our preclinical years is uh, Tamara Kalir, and she's a GYN pathologist. And you know, I always loved her hey. lectures, and she's very calm and patient, and she also happens to be one of the kindest people I've ever met. Um, and so when I did my first rotation, just exploring pathology as a med student, um, I think, as we all know, there's often it's often challenging to be a med student on a pathology rotation. It's not a built-in role like there is for, say, internal medicine. Um, but she really took me under her wing, and she'd give me unknown cases and take extra time out of her day to look at them with me. Um, and you know, she she inspired me to go into the overall field of pathology in addition to the specialty that I picked um, for a lot of reasons. But partly, you know, she always made super clear. And she looked at a slide, even though she wasn't seeing the patient directly, like she really made very clear how much she cared about the patient at the other end and how much she thought about how her diagnosis would impact that patient's life. And I really found that very inspirational. Um, And then I was lucky enough, I I did residency in the same place and she was my faculty mentor throughout residency. Um, And so I got to continue, you know, learning about GYN pathology with her and getting a lot of really valuable career advice and um, I really think I I owe her a lot in, in having found my my path. That's fun. That's fun because you are also one of the kindest people that I know. <laughs> that so, yeah. uh, <laughs> what about you, Nilo? <laughs> yes. Um, when I was in medical school, I uh, I noticed that uh, the female attendings are pathologists seem to be the most relaxed attendings, and uh, <laughs> in comparison to our like surgeons, females and I. <laughs> Uh, and they tended to like take better care of themselves. They had time. It seemed like they had more balance in their lives. And uh, that uh, I remember that. And uh, I always wanted to have a life and a family life and have kids and uh, uh, not to be a diss at anyone. But like I thought like in pathology, yes, it's true. I work five or six days a week and I'm on call. I have had to go to the hospital at midnight to do a frozen section. I have had to go in at like 2 a.m. to look at a blood smear, you know, uh, for AML, but at the same time, these are like, you know, that not that common. And mm-hmm. I feel like our, our profession allows us to uh, enjoy ourselves, at least in private practice, as much as we work hard, we still have, I think, like, you know, uh, uh, more time to like spend with the family, we don't have to like sleep at the hospital, we don't have to do a lot of things that, that our, our uh, clinical colleagues have to do. And uh, when I came here, I was at Orlando Health. They had this uh, attending, Dr. G. She had a show on Discovery. She was a forensic pathologist. And I even, like, <laughs> showed up in a couple of her episodes. Nice. <laughs> yes. You're famous. Um, yes, I know. And uh, she, too, she was, like, she she was a very strong lady, very compassionate. She very good at what she used to do. And that has stuck with me. And, uh, like, I don't know, like, how you guys do it, but, like, I've had, 
I had a case two years ago. It was a pancreatic mass. It looked horrible on imaging. And even when I was grossing it, it looked horrible, but it turned out to be like a tubular adenoma, non-invasive. And I was like thinking that this poor patient, she's like, I think 50 years old. They told her, you know, you have pancreatic cancer and that's it. And then it goes to nothing. We even sent it to Hopkins to Dr. Uh Rubin and then he basically concurred with us. So what I did was like, I just walked into the patient's room before anybody knew and I introduced myself and I said, I'm here to tell you really good news. And, you know, she was so happy. We both cried together. So maybe one, one of those like, crazy pathologist <laughs> I some of the pay I mean and my clinical colleagues know me and uh and especially the GYN guys uh the GYO guys they sometimes mm-hmm. when they have difficult patients patients that are too anxious they send them to me and we sit down I mean I don't care that you know an, an hour passes by and it's not compensated right but like I, I sit down and you know I talk to them and I feel like I'm able to explain their disease better than the, my clinical colleagues I show them their slides sometimes I've taken them to the gross room show them like their tumor um, Holy cow, dude, yes. this is incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really great. Yeah, like I, I had like uh, about three years ago, I had a medical student that she had a borderline tumor in ovary. And, you know, she, uh, my friend Nick, uh, the GYO guy is like, can you like spend some time with her? She's really worried about her chances of getting pregnant. She doesn't understand what a borderline terminology is. So basically I said, yeah, have her come whatever day she can. And we can spend the day together. So she came. I took her to the grocery room. I, you know, like, I made sure she's not going to faint. But I showed her her ovary and whatever was left of her uh, ovary. And we looked at it under the microscope. I took some pictures for her. And we're good friends right now. So I feel like pathologists are not introduced to the patients the way they should be. Like, uh, uh I had a, I, mean, I keep talking, I'm sorry, but we <laughs> no. had a case, uh, the That's patient was a for. lawyer yeah. and she had like written to the head of our organization and complained about her pathology bill. And she had said that everything in Baptist was awesome and great. She thanked all the janitors, everybody, the food people. And then the only thing <laughs> was that she was like shocked by her uh, medical bill from pathology. And then like, if, if you think about it, like it was a double mastectomy, oophorectomy, how many hours I spent on that? How many hours I'm like looking at it, cutting it, you know, putting the report together, making sure I'm not missing any margins. And, and you know, it's just so unfair, you know? that we don't have a face to these patients because like she doesn't know whatever medical decision is made for her is because of my report you know mm-hmm. like if if i wasn't there to tell the surgeon that her anterior margin is positive you know the the, the management would have been different um they don't see that so we're basically uh, not introduced to the patients, unfortunately, and they don't understand the value of our input and what we do. It's the same thing with the medical students. If they don't have any uh, rotations with us, they don't know who we are, what we do. You know, like I've uh, spoken yeah. to my colleagues, the clinical colleagues, they know that I like to teach students. So when people from FIU medical students are rotating, they're always, they come to pathology, spend some time with us. And if when they come, they had no idea what pathology is. And they're like, yeah, yeah we have two electives, but if you want, we can do pathology. But honestly, nobody encourages so maybe that's why we don't have a lot of people like applying to pathology. Oh, I totally agree with yeah. you. And I, you know, the the reason I knew what pathologists were and what they did is because I had worked in a lab, right? I was a phlebotomist for three yeah. years or something. And so I, and but what I thought they did was autopsies, uh-huh. which yeah. is like in a community hospital, bonkers. What we need to figure out as pathologists is how to integrate the medical students. Because I know like at Hopkins, they had that thing where the GYN medical students rotated with us for a week. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. So we almost always had a medical student. So they got to see, I mean, granted, we're, you know, like a, a conglomerate of very interesting personalities, but yeah, 
they got to see what we did. And I don't think everybody does that, which is no. unfortunate. It yeah. could be by design also because a lot of us, like, like physically, we're not challenged. So, like, you're, like, 79, I don't know, 80 years old, and you have no desire to retire. So the spot you've had, this job you've had for, like, yeah. I don't know, 50 years, you're yeah. reluctant to give it up. And that's why, like, maybe, yeah. like, by design, the elders in the profession, they think that, you know, I mean, like. Oh, yeah, keep keep the recruiting exactly. pool small. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe that's I can see private practice you know like because like if you think about it when i was applying the jobs are were not that easy to come by you know um yeah. it's hard to i mean you you as a medical like as a internal medicine person or like a pediatrician or anything you know every city has i don't know 50 openings but like for pathology there's like one or two if that you know like in miami yeah. right now there are no openings and i have these great people that i email me and they're like do you have any openings do you know of anybody no i don't because i don't know nobody wants to retire thank god yeah. everybody has a healthy life and uh, so as small as the group of uh, you know residents are i mean it's still you know it's hard to find yeah. jobs yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about subspecialization because I think right around the time I was in residency and that was uh, 2008 to 2012, subspecialization was really becoming a thing. When I started residency, there were three benches and we were a high volume academic center. So it was just, you know, like um, GI biopsies and then like GYN stuff and then like everything else, you know? So there's like the people who were on that, it was like breasts and colons and like all this stuff that doesn't really go together. And then as I became like a more senior resident, it became the default, right? Everybody was doing specialty sign out and there were eight or nine benches instead of three or four. Um, And I think that's true in academics now mostly, but in private practices, I'm even noticing that groups are getting bigger, right? As Mm -hmm. sort of consolidation Mm -hmm. happens. And in groups that have say more than eight or nine people, they try to have a heme person and a derm person and a GI person and a, you know, so like a couple of cyto people. Um, and I'd like to talk about what this shift looks like to those of us in academics versus someone in community practice. And Neela, we can start with you. I know you, you talked about how you do a fair amount of GYN cases, mm-hmm. but can you tell me what your experience is like in this area? Because I've also noticed clinicians sometimes specifically will say, like when I was in practice in Denver, they would say Mm -hmm. to me, okay, wait, did you do a GYM fellowship? You know, like, can I trust what you're saying? Do you find Mm -hmm. that that happens? I know you're talking to patients too. So maybe they're asking you that as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, that's true. Like, not only pathology in every, uh, you know, branch of medicine, the the trend is to become self-specialized and it helps, you know, like in our group, we have like four different uh, self-specialties and, um, we we tend to like rely rely on people that have done the self specialty to help us, but um, yeah. And the, like for example, for me, the GYO is like whenever there's a case, we don't like to give all of the cases to me. But at least the GYOs make sure that if there's a particular case, like say there's a case from Israel that, you know, had this issue when she came here, they make mm-hmm. sure that I know this case is coming. So when my colleague is looking at it, I go and like, you know, take a peek and, you know, and see what's going on. And mm-hmm. I feel like, as you said, they feel more comfortable uh, mm-hmm. when somebody that has done a fellowship in that particular field, like in Andrea, like she does all the Ahim cases. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like uh, sometimes what I say doesn't even matter. Like I would talk to the United <laughs> Pathology. Probably matters when you're the only warm body there yeah. at 2 a.m. But at 2 a.m. I say it's a blast, yes. But then when it comes to like you know, uh, you know, uh, 
lymphoma of the leg type, whatever are these weird uh, categories of lymphoma that I, you know. I love leg type lymphoma. Yeah. That's so great. Yes. uh, They, I feel like whatever I say, they're like, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Has Andrea seen it? And I'm like, yes. uh, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. That's good to know it's happening everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's, that's exactly true. And what about you, Kruthi? I think you all uh, sign out by subspecialty, but it seems like you also cover other services. So what are you noticing? And also, as someone in academic practice, are you noticing that people are requesting more refined testing on specimens, like molecular testing, more than you noticed, say, when you started? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so the, the first part of your question. So we, yeah, we are, we have subspecialty services, um, but all of us spend time on at least a couple of different ones. Um, uh-huh. just so, to keep you scared just, yes, just, just, to, just to keep that fear real yeah um but I mean <laughs> yeah. I think the important thing is so I so you know I spend at least half of my time probably on GYN or, or things like breasts and placenta that I do more of and feel more comfortable with um but when I'm doing other things like you know GI it's uh I think it's really important um for someone like me who's not fellowship trained in GI and who isn't doing it every day that I do have the go-to people who can help me and I think as long as I sort of know what right. I don't know and I have those resources, um, it's okay. But I do think it's getting it's getting harder. I think it's getting progressively harder to cover other specialties if you don't do it often, because the fields are yes. really changing. Each specialty is changing so rapidly um, when it comes to reporting parameters, right? And molecular studies and how. Right. I mean, just thinking about PDL one, which I think has been a really big change for all of us. Um, and, you know, up until a couple of years ago, we weren't doing a lot of PDL one immunostains on GYN tumors. And now we do it on every cervical squamous cell carcinoma and sometimes on other ones. And of course, there's different criteria for reporting it in the cervix versus reporting in the breast and different antibodies versus the lung. And so I yeah. think if you're not doing it every day, then yeah. it's really hard to, to know what the very organ specific criteria are. Um, and so, yeah, and just it's interesting how that's sort of carrying over from academics and how the surgeons and clinicians who train in academics now are going into community practice and they expect that same level of, mm-hmm. you know, like concierge sort of pathology, if you will. I, made I that also up feel like if you do a subspecialty, it helps with your confidence. And, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. when you're dealing with surgeons, when you're doing a frozen section, you know, uh, you have to be really confident. Like yeah. uh, when I started here, uh, there was this uh, old GU guy. He passed away recently, and he brought me a testicular biopsy and said, "I don't know why I brought you this biopsy, but it's bad. I mean, I'm going to take it out, but I just wanted to make sure that it's bad. It's invading everything." And I'm like, "Okay, how old is the guy? 35." So I have a biopsy of a 35 year old testicle, and I look at it. It's an adenomatoid tumor. Oh, so oh, it's no. me. I swear to God, it's like 7 p.m. There's nobody there. Everybody's left. And I'm like telling this old guy, I'm like, yes, I mean, I don't think this is malignant. Oh, no, it is malignant. I'm like, uh-huh. oh, this is an adenomatoid tumor. And, uh, you know, he's 35 years old. Probably not mesothelioma. Oh yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I did say that, you know, and, and that's the thing. And I called it, uh, Andrea and she's like, what if it's a mesothelioma? And I'm like, it doesn't really look like mesothelioma. It looks like exactly like a, a you know, adenomatoid tumor of like the fallopian tube. It's just so innocuous looking. Anyhow, so he wouldn't, he was like, no, no, I'm going to go back. I'm going to take it out. I'm like, uh, no, don't take it out. I'm like, just leave it tomorrow. Somebody else is going to be here and we're going to like basically call you and tell you, what, what are you going to lose? Like, you're going to go take out this guy's testicle if tomorrow I call you for 100% and I tell you it's an adenomatoid tumor, you already have taken out the testicle. So uh, there's nothing you can do. But versus like, let's say, yes, it's whatever, 
that I missed diagnosing today. And then you can take him back to the OR tomorrow. And, you know, sort of like this, like uh, I saved his testicle <laughs> because of my, you know, uh, my, my sort of like personality and you know, I fought for it you know it's like showdown at the MK Corral Milu in the frozen section room oh my goodness and then I was like feeling like this guy this 35 year old faceless guy has no idea what amount of stress I had to endure to save his testicle you know <laughs> That this, that this, he like, it to me. He it to me. But like, I think like if I was mm-hmm. one of those like you know stammering ones, uh, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I guess like yes, you know, uh, the testicle would be gone. There's no, there's no room for like you know, you know, trying to be nice and you know, like yeah, that's true. With this you just have to be like confident. And then for yeah. me, confidence comes from having training and education. Mm-hmm. So if I was not at Hopkins and I didn't sit with Dr. Epstein and I didn't do like reading at my you know, residency, I wouldn't feel that comfortable and I would have basically gone by whatever he was going with because he was really confident that this is like invasion of whatever and it's really bad and imaging is bad. But, you know, mm-hmm. and then the next day when I called him, he was like, yeah, I know. When I looked at it again, it wasn't that bad. I'm like, oh, oh. my God. Like, you know, this oh, my goodness. Well, maybe imagine? it was late in the evening for him as Fair. well, but that's, yeah. that's scary. Yeah. I don't know about you, Kruthi, but I don't know if I probably, I mean, I probably would have stuck up for the patient, but then as soon as the frozen section do, like door cried, I probably would have like broken down into tears or something over the cryostat, <laughs> <laughs> cried into the cryostat. I don't know. I, uh, oh, man. No, but like, at least you, that fellowship really helped with your confidence. Like if you yeah. just, you know, did it, I mean, I don't think there's anybody that has only done it, res- and, 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 you know, among us like in our like age yeah. group between, like 30 to like 45 that yeah. has only done like a residence and nobody would hire you but if you're yeah, not yeah. you know you haven't done like a suitable re- fellowship then you know you won't be able to help the patients and you know yeah yeah i well i can tell you that you made me more confident Nilo. you are um you're confident but you're also intelligent i remember one time when we were talking about gestational trophoblastic tumors i hadn't been there that long of course you were only there for my first year fellowship yeah. but i i said something to you like um, I was trying to read about epithelial trophoblastic tumors versus placental site tro- or trophoblastic tumors. Yeah. And I said, it's really hard for me to tell them apart. I'm not sure I'm ever going to be able to do that. And you just like tapped the desk and you said, of course you are. Look at this. Look at this. It looks different than that. And then you just like, you just like said, this looks like an epithelioid. It looks like a placenta, you know, and like you just basically took like 20 to uh, maybe like uh, two minutes and explained it to me. And ever since then, whenever the little voice in my head is like, maybe you don't know this. I just like tap my hand on the table and I'm like, of course you do. Just like buck up and do it, you know? And so I, I think, um, Neelu, you could retire from medicine and just give TED talks on like, (laughs) just tell the story about the testicle and you could lead in with the story of telling me like, quit being foolish and just of course you know the difference like uh yeah and Kruthi I just uh sometimes when I want to complain about things do you remember how you and I always used to talk in that little whiny voice to one another (laughs) only to you and I like I think it sounded kind of like a like Beaker from the Muppets at least in my head I do have to control (laughs) myself you would see sometimes in in front of other people Dealing with residents. Sure. Or no, yeah, definitely. Do you remember they would like they would bring the consults around in that little cart, and you would see that I don't remember her name. That very nice woman would like stop at the door, and you were like, "Oh my god, how how deep is she going in the cart?" And you're just like holding onto the chair, and then she would just like she would just like really dip down into there, and you were like, "Oh my god." <laughs> 
I'm never going to dig out from that stack. Yeah, just put it on the pile with the rest of the fun. Yeah, I remember that. Just talking in that little voice to one another. But um, I really appreciate you both doing this. I know you're both very busy. And I want to thank you both for not only recording with me, but also for being sort of like my GYM pathology big sisters. I don't think I'd be who I am or, um, like I said, those oh. injections of confidence that you all gave me. Um, I remember calling you from the frozen room and I would just have to be like, <laughs> and then, like one of you would just sort of like run in there and be like, it's going to be okay, Natalie, you know, getting used to sort yeah. of, uh, telling the surgeons what for like Neelu does. So um, I wish that I could still call on you today, Likewise. but I can't. So I just replay your voices yeah. in my head. So yeah, but um, it's been a pleasure speaking with both of you, you. and uh, I really yeah, appreciate nice. it. Yes. Yeah. Thanks, Thank Natalie. you. Thank you both. Okay. Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today, it is my pleasure to welcome a special guest and fellow GYM pathology specialist, Dr. Navina Singh. Dr. Singh studied medicine at the University of Delhi in India. She trained in pathology at the Postgraduate Institute of Medical Education and Research in Chandigarh, India, and at St. Bartholomew's and the Royal London Hospitals in London. She is a histopathologist at Bart's Health NHS Trust in London and is widely published in the areas of GYM pathology and cytopathology and edits textbooks and teaches all over, including at international conferences. So this is a part of a series that I'm doing in an effort to highlight the innovative and exciting opportunities available within our field to pathology residents and those already in or considering medical training. I have asked Dr. Singh here today as a part of this series on GYM pathology, where I'm talking to leaders in our field about why they chose this area and what is happening in our field now. Dr. Singh, thank you so much for joining me. How are you? Very well, thank you. And thank you for asking me, Natalie. Yeah, it's a pleasure. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself, aside from the sort of CV type recitations I have made above and how you came to work where you do? So I trained in India, as you said, and then I moved to the United Kingdom when I was in that gap between completing my pathology training and waiting for a consultant job that I that I liked. I wanted to uh, get the RC Pass examination. It's it's a very uh, coveted qualification in pathology, and so I thought I could take my exams in that gap. And so I came over, and uh, I was pregnant when I came over. And three years later, and two babies later, and two exams later, I was offered a job of my dreams. So so I stayed on. So it wasn't really planned. So I I work in the United Kingdom. I still hold my Indian passport. Mm-hmm. Um, that I live here with my husband, who is English, and, and my family. Mm-hmm. And I've never felt the urge to move because the work is very fulfilling and it doesn't matter. Patients are the same wherever you are. Yes. That's a busy gap, though, to study for that many exams and have that many children as someone who also has two children. <laughs> I don't know. I look back at my friends who were in residency and studying for boards while they had little kids because I did not at the time. And I think that they were incredible for having the wherewithal to do that, um, as I think that you are. So um, for those not familiar with our specialty, can you tell me about the things that you normally do in a workday? So for a consultant, most of our time is reporting gynecological specimens. uh, And that means looking down the microscope and we're reporting um, biopsies from patients with gynecological problems. I also report cytology, as you said, 
And we also look at specimens from surgical specimens, patients who have had treatment for their gynecological cancer. We look at those. And the point of all of that, whether it is for a first diagnosis or whether it is uh, looking at the sample taken out to treat the patient, such as a hysterectomy, removing the uterus, the idea is to uh, tell the, uh, the rest of the team what the disease is, how bad it is, in order to determine what further treatment that patient may or may not need. So our specimens are divided into cancers, so that's, that's quite a big bulk of the work where I am. We also report benign specimens in the same way where the purpose is to uh, confirm that there is nothing more sinister in that uh, specimen, but also to, to decide how to treat a particular patient, such as patients with infertility or endometriosis or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then we have a big, uh, in the National Health Service, a cervical screening program, a cancer prevention program for cancer of the cervix, and there's a lot of pathology related to that. In addition to that, we have uh, what, is, what are called frozen sections, where we <clears throat> report specimens while the patient is under anesthetic during the operation to um, tell the surgeon, yes, this is benign, or no, I'm afraid it's malignant, or that the no, uh, lymph node is positive, or a margin is positive, and all of this is to guide the extent of surgery. So in addition... Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. In addition to pathology, I also have an obsession with quality improvement. So uh, our hospital is one of the hospitals who are part of the Institute of Healthcare Improvement. And so we're currently working on turnaround times, trying to improve that within the department. But there's always quality improvement is a constant thing. And so constantly looking for things to improve. I teach undergraduate students, med- medical students. I also teach postgraduates and I do some research. So all of that. A lot of, yeah, you wear a really. lot of hats. Yeah. So do in a typical day, um, you mentioned that you divide your specimens into the cancer and then the sort of, you hope, benign specimens. Um, uh, is that something that you do per person? Are you doing sub-specialized sign-outs? So you just do GYN and cyto, or are you also doing general surge path at all? Yeah. So ours is quite a big department. We, mm-hmm. uh, we, we receive about 70,000 surgical specimens every year. So wow. we, yeah. we should have 30. We don't really have 30 pathologists. We're a little below that, but we do uh, work in specialist teams. So there are six okay. gynae pathologists, two of us report cytology as well. And it's not just gynae cytology, it's all cytology. Um, okay. So in one week, we are either doing cervical screening, or we are doing cancers, or we're doing non-cancer, or we're doing cytology. Okay, so you've had to chop it up into pieces, I assume, because your volumes are so high. That's a lot of specimens. Um, And um, so uh, moving on, I've interviewed various folks in science and medicine, and then also for this series, and I'm seeing a theme emerge that mentorship of some kind usually plays a role in the selection of a specialty, someone along the way who offers an opportunity or guides you when you're at a crossroads. I can point myself to several individuals, for example, both when I was a medical student and also when I was a resident, who were excellent mentors either in the general field of pathology or who were specialists in GYN and cytopathology. Is this true for you or how did you come to choose GYN as a subspecialty? Yeah, I think it's true for everyone. There's there, there are many mentors, and there are many mentors who would not even have known how how they inspired or whether or that they inspired. There are many people who inspire you from far away who have never even met or who have died before you were 
mm-hmm. uh, join the specialty. Um, and there are also those who choose by being such a bad example. So it all ends. Oh, oh. <laughs> you think, oh, that's something I'm not going to do. So, uh-huh. so too many people probably to name along the way. Uh-huh. But the idea is to take inspiration from whenever it comes, mm-hmm. from wherever it comes. But I think that said, I would be remiss if I did not mention Glenn McCluggage, who is um, one of the world's leading gynae pathologists. And I had the good fortune of coming into contact with him through the British Association of Gynae Pathologists. We were in the council together and it was a pleasure uh-huh. to work with him. More recently, Blake Jilks, um, who was the president of the International Gynae Society at the same time that I was the president of the British one. So it was wonderful to be able to interact with him and other, uh, you know, both of these are so unassuming, even though they are so amazing at what they do. And they're, you know, without even doing anything, they managed to inspire you. And I yeah. think a third will be the, the, the other end of the spectrum from these two is Chaling Bose, a very, very nice colleague from Leiden who is, you know, the opposite of unassuming, but so full of energy, so full of ideas that, you, you, you know, keeps you going. So, yes, there are a few named people. Yeah. And then yeah, why did a... I choose gynae pathology? Well, choosing pathology is difficult. It's it's hidden from view in medical school. So like many people, I only discovered pathology existed as a career after graduating and uh, took pathology as a house job because I was preparing for entrance exams for a postgraduate specialty. And at that time, I was heading for gynae um, oh. as a specialty. But when I did my house job, I think two weeks in, I realized that that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> it was love at first sight, and I never went, never went back from that. How then, lucky was that? Here, was that in the UK, or was that that was in India? You... No, that was in, in India. India, and it was a, a GI pathology unit. But I completely loved it. And then gynae mm-hmm. pathology. So again, I I don't. I don't see myself as a, a very ambitious or a targeted or a very focused individual or even a very organized person, actually. And my <laughs> philosophy Sorry. has always, you know, being having a very specific target is really good because you then move towards it. But I feel that if you're too focused, you, you miss all the other things that are around. So my yeah. focus has always been accept every opportunity as a gift. And then once you've accepted it then max it immerse yourself in and do your absolute best within the circumstances and then everything is okay so when I finished pathology I liked probably at that time renal and lymphoreticular pathology maybe breast would have come ahead of gynae in fact gynae 20 years ago was not very glamorous at all it really didn't matter what you said in your report you know all ovarian cancers were just ovarian carcinoma all endometrial carcinomas are just endometrial carcinoma. Nobody is really interested in the pathology. It's much more exciting now. Right. Now, of course, right. I wouldn't recommend any other field. So at the time I took it, I took it because a colleague retired and nobody else was interested. And I was asked to take charge within two uh-huh. years of my becoming a consultant. Um, and so I did immerse myself in it and I've enjoyed it. I wouldn't do anything else, but now I think, yeah, there's, there's probably no other field where when you're discussing a patient, there are so many issues to consider, not just her prognosis, not just her, 
clinical outcome or, or her, you know, the type of treatment, but there's fertility in there, there are psychological issues in there, there mm-hmm. is sexual health in there. And so mm-hmm. every patient is completely unique. And I'm constantly struck by how much, how humbled you are, that there is so much new to learn every day. So yeah. it's absolutely brilliant. <laughs> yeah, and I, I totally agree. And and one thing that reminded me when you were talking was um when I talked to residents and medical students and I say um, all pathologists, even if they're not TUIM pathologists, if they work in any kind of general practice setting, will end up in the frozen room with an ovary staring them down. <laughs> so because um, it's one of the fields where intraoperative consultation is still so vital to intraoperative management. It's not for curiosity or so they can tell the patient something when they wake up. It's here's a specimen, here's this patient, and we need you to tell us, do we turn right or do we turn left? And it's so important to be proficient at that. And it's like you said, there's so many things to consider, young patients, fertility, you know, um, that's true. And I, I obviously I wouldn't recommend anything else, but I'm highly biased. So um, <laughs> you uh, are widely published in the area of GYN pathology. I um, I can usually tell like a very clear area that people have become interested in as they go on, but it seems like you have wide interests. So that makes sense when you say that you say yes to opportunities. That all makes sense. Um, but it does seem like you've published a lot about high-grade serous carcinoma of the fallopian tube and ovary and some hereditary syndromes with endometrial cancer. Can you tell me what it was like to get started in research in this area? And if you consider yourself focused, how you came to focus in one area or another? Yeah. So again, I think your research topic also finds you to some extent. Um, it has to be at the right time for a person. So I, I did absolutely nothing with, with young children in the house. And then I had a third uh, after a gap. So till 20, you know, if you look at my presence on the on PubMed before 2013, there there's hardly anything there. But then there's a second life. So all to, to all you youngsters to tell you, you know, it's okay. I had most of my really good ideas when my, um, you know, children were much older. There's, there's plenty of life mm-hmm. ahead. So when do, you were getting some sleep, probably, yes, would be yeah. my guess. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The, do, yeah. do what you can when it works for you. It should, research should be done because it's a pleasure and because you are really interested in the answer. And if you, if you have, go with those principles, then you won't go wrong because the study question should be very clear. It should be of clinical value. It should be relevant. Your design should be focused. And I think it's even more important now than than ever before when research funding is becoming so uh, constrained. But anyway, wh- where did I start? So one of the biggest pr- projects that I got involved in was a, was the United Kingdom Collaborative Trial of Ovarian Cancer Screening, about mm-hmm. to publish its results in, uh, in the spring of next year, I hope. But this is one of the largest ever um, randomized controlled trials in, on humans to see the uh, impact of screening on the mortality of ovarian cancer, if any. And so from that came the obsession on primary site assignment, which has been, I think, one of the um, things I've written a, an embarrassing number of papers on, actually, but just to to make the point that it's important to get things right. And I think if there's not a there's not a common theme in the things that I've done, they do seem like they're all over the place. But I think what gets me is the subjectivity in histopathology reporting, that we should not be reporting pathology as if 
it's a descriptive thing and there's no clear conclusion at the end. The variation is fine, but it should have clinical value. And then mm-hmm. variation, which is clinically significant, should not be there at all. We should, we should be doing the same thing. We should all be doing what is right for the patient and be reporting in a clear and, and accurate and a precise way. So probably that is the common theme. So, you know, where I find there's huge variation in whether or not we do mismatch repair, I mean, on, in our endometrial cancer patients, that led to a survey, that's led to all sorts of guideline documents. Chemotherapy response scoring is to do with, you know, being able to report objectively on how good or not the patient's response has been to chemotherapy yeah. for ovarian cancer. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's a patient that sets you off. I, I reported a, a core biopsy on an ovarian cancer and I uh, misinterpreted the P53. I wasn't sure if it was normal or abnormal. It was a difficult case. And mm-hmm. The patient had surgery, did not survive her surgery, and maybe would have had uh, they would have opted for a non-surgical treatment had I put a different P53 report. So that led to all of the series on immunohistochemistry and its accuracy and so forth. So some some come in your lap because of a responsibility. So the ISGIP project is because I have the responsibility of organizing it. So yeah, it's it's been pretty much, yes, what what is relevant at that time? What is truly a question worth asking? And then go for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, I actually find um, I two things to say about this. One, when I got into academics myself, and I was in uh, what we call private practice or community practice here before I came back to academics, I was afraid I wouldn't think of things to do research on. And this is a concern that I share with other junior faculty. But what I find is that most of my ideas come from consensus conferences or sign out when I'm doing something, and then I go to see if there is literature about the question I'm asking and there either isn't or it's not specific enough for the question I'm asking. So, and I, much like you, I always want to make sure that I'm doing something that's going to answer a question that has a a clear impact on patient care. You know, is it going to help the clinician decide whether this patient needs, you know, a cone biopsy or things like that? So, um, I like your philosophy. That's very practical. And um, I also think it would be interesting to do a paper on women in academic medicine and childbirth and see the graph of the years when their CV gets a little thinner and then how it comes back once their kids are more self-sufficient. But maybe that's for another day. <laughs> it would be interesting. It would be interesting. So uh, it seems that molecular techniques, um, and this ties in nicely to the comment you made about 20 years ago, um, how GYN pathology wasn't quite as maybe sophisticated. Um, It seems that molecular techniques are being increasingly applied to neoplasms of the GYN tract, both for prognosis and increasingly for diagnosis. You touched on this in part in your recent paper from histopathology, which was titled The Changing Landscape of Gynecologic Pathology, WHO 2020 and beyond. Um, can you talk a little bit about this article and where you see GYN pathology research heading? So I think um, there's no question that um, molecular studies are going to impact on everything we do in histopathology. So the, the main role for the pathologist right now is to align morphology with the molecular basis of disease and basically to know where morphology works and where it does not. And where morphology still works to get that completely accurate, whether it is 
uh, classical morphology, whether it is interpretation of a molecular marker, whatever we're doing should do absolutely accurately. I think the other thing to say about research is that this pandemic is going to have a, a lasting impact on research funding. Um, so again, when designing your projects, I mean, if I look at my own uh, in, in what I call my second life since in the last seven or eight years, whatever I've done, it's all been done on a shoestring budget. Very few have mm -hmm. been grant funded projects. My biggest grant fund at the, you know, grant in the last, in these last years has been 20,000 pounds. It's not a big, a good research question does not necessarily need funding is what I'm trying to say. I think right. that what we need to find as a community uh, to be collaborative across the world or across centers, that's the important thing. Get the numbers right, get the technique right, get the study question right. And a lot there's so many questions in what we do day to day without any molecular pathology, how we report progesterone response, um, how do we report, you know, you, you, you'll have seen the chronic endometritis debate going on online, that kind of thing. There are lots of things we can sort out without too much money, but by being collaborative and clear-headed. So yes, molecular techniques on the one hand, but I think as pathologists, our focus should be morphology and we should be getting that absolutely spot on. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you talked about the endocervical project um, and collaboration. So I think it's also important because GYN tumors sometimes tend to not be quite as common compared to say something like breast cancer, where you know, one state or one part of a country can make a database of thousands and thousands of cases. Sometimes it's hard to do that um, for things, you know, I'm thinking of something like uterine serous carcinoma, not very common, right? So the importance of collaboration, do you want to talk a little bit about the collaborative effort and how you, how that's been organized with ISGIP? Yes, I think that's really that great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that was a great opportunity. In fact, you know, a lot of the studies I've done have been with uh, collaboration for these reasons, because if you sit down and write about the five cases that you have seen, your rep rep results could be completely wrong. Whereas if you get right. 200, that makes a total difference. So in the past, it's been just interpersonal, but the ISGIP was a way to, to, to try it out. And then you, you sort of send out the invitation email and then you're sitting there thinking, oh my God, like it's like inviting people into a party and nobody turns up. <laughs> but it was so gratifying to see uh -huh. not just the volume of the response, but how enthusiastic and how grateful people are to, to put that together. I think it'll be the first of many. So I've told the next ISGIP president that he needs to, you know, start planning from now. And I think we can, we can answer so many questions this way if everybody pulls in their resources and puts their heads together. It's the only way to work. So right. I'm, I'm very right. much up for that. <laughs> Especially, I, I mean, I have to think back, you know, 50 years ago, that study would have been a lot harder to organize. But now that we all have email and you know, even now that people are doing things like Zoom sign out, you could share cases easily with someone halfway across the world. And um, just for those who don't know, ISGIP is the International Society of GYN Pathologists, which is an international organization, which if you're a trainee, you can actually join for free. Um, you just need to reach out to a member of the society and talk to them about it, which you're welcome to talk to me. Um, but it's a great organization. They have meetings and um, they're working on some new educational opportunities. So truly a great thing to be a part of. Um, and I think that's a good place to leave it. Dr. Singh, thank you so much for joining me today. Did you have any closing comments you wanted to make? 
Thank you for making those comments about the International Society. Just to the trainees, I wanted to say also that we are currently working on a very big educational resource, a website on which you can Mm -hmm. look at interesting cases, listen to recorded lectures from experts in the field. So do join the society. Thank you. Yeah, and I can I'll I'll promote that in the notes to this. So if you're listening to this, you can easily click on it and uh, I think it's a it's going to be a great resource, especially now that we're all trying to stay away from one another um, in the physical sense. We can come together in the virtual sense. So thank you for joining me, Dr. Singh. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Natalie. It was a okay. pleasure. Yeah.